Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Xinyi Yan Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital and Smarter Money Investments. And Yingyi is joined by Christopher Joy. I'm also a Portfolio Manager at Coolabar Capital and SMI. So Chris, this is a special episode of the podcast to discuss the bail in debt revolution that APRA's new total loss absorbing capacity, otherwise known as TLAC, policy is about to bring out. But before we go on to that, Chris, why don't you give us an update on markets? Sure, Ying is. And um, I'll talk about both June and July um, because it's been a while since we've published a podcast episode. Uh, thanks again, of course, to the thousands of listeners that have made this uh, one of the most popular investment podcasts in Australia. So beginning with June, the month started off in a somewhat risk-averse fashion as investors fretted about the US-China trade war intensifying. But it actually ended with a very strong risk-on tone as geopolitical anxieties were superseded by the influence of cheap money, the ensuing search for yield, and the oft-referenced FOMO or fear of missing out dynamic. After the RBA cut rates, uh, both in June and July, uh, with the market pricing in another cut, and the Fed preparing to aggressively follow suit as well. Coolabar observed very strong demand across all of our core positions. They include mainly the major bank senior bonds, but we also had exposures to uh, tier two bonds issued by banks and hybrids and the ASX listed hybrid market. Uh, the tier two market performed well uh, naturally before uh, APRA's hugely important tier like policy announcement that you uh, referenced at the start of the podcast. Hybrids in particular posted exceptional performance in June, following on from the striking capital gains registered after the federal election, with the ASX hybrid market delivering a 1.8% franked total return over the month. Our initial spread target for five-year major bank hybrids after the election had been compression from uh, 356 basis points over the bank bill swap rate, or BBSW, on the 17th of May through to uh, initially we were targeting 300 basis points over BBSW uh, in the period immediately thereafter. We flagged that once we breached through that level, our next technical spread target would be those last recorded in mid-2014 when five-year major bank hybrid spreads were trading in the low 200s. And interestingly, the ASX hybrid market years has now comfortably busted through our initial 300 basis point uh, spread target with the five-year major bank hybrid curve trading around the low 270s in July. Yeah, Chris, the only thing that appears likely to stop further sharp spread compression that we've been seeing will be incoming supply. And with no less than five large major bank hybrids issues consummated since February 2018, plus two jumbo size Macquarie deals or seven deals in total, and one of those Macquarie transactions being an opportunistic attempt to front run the federal election and its associated risks, there should be no pressing need for these banks to hit the market with new supply, especially considering that there are no more bank maturities before the end of 2019. Having said that, 
we do expect or rather hope that some supply will materialize before calendar year 2019 finishes, including ideally an OTC deal, otherwise known as over-the-counter, which we have not seen from the major banks in Aussie dollars for more than a decade. So in OTC markets, we have similarly noted an exceedingly strong bid tone chasing yield, especially from participants with large inflows that are looking to maintain a specific running yield. Five-year major bank tier two bond spreads have screamed in from the 215 basis points level that NAB issued at earlier in May 2019 to about 186 basis points in early July before APRA's TLAC announcement. This dynamic has also been evidenced in major banks' senior markets where five-year spreads have tightened from 114 basis points at the start of 2019 into about 81 basis points at the end of June, which is 10 basis points wide of the levels in secondary markets in January 2018 and about 20 basis points wide of the post-GFC trust touched in mid-2014. Yeah, Ying is um, just sticking with June for a second. I mean, it was noteworthy that in the last few days of the month, uh, the risk on wave in credit markets particularly seemed to be driven by <coughs> expectations of the return of the central bank's cheap money policies uh, and the possibility of quantitative easing or asset purchases by central banks in Australia, the US and Europe. And this was obviously reinforced positively by Trump agreeing to restart trade negotiations with uh, the Chinese and not imposing that crucial next uh, tranche of 25% tariffs on all remaining Chinese exports to the US. Then as we moved into July, um, after APRA's TLAC policy announcement, which we're about to dissect in immense detail, We've seen those five-year major bank senior bond spreads you refer to scream in an incredible uh, 20 basis points further to about 62 basis points over BBSW as investors wake up to the supply squeeze that we have long forecast. In fact, I think we're probably one of the few, if not only asset managers that had a six-handle forecast uh, for five-year major bank senior for quite a long time now, uh, and we're not going to be surprised if major bank senior spreads moved in to the 50s. We've had two big uh, maturities in July, or we have two big maturities, CBA and ANZ have uh, large uh, senior bonds being repaid this month, and that's only going to intensify the bid. Uh, and there's no doubt that that FOMO dynamic has extended to senior paper as investors become increasingly concerned of uh, 60 billion or so of senior debt disappearing as a result of APRA's TLAC initiative. Chris, I think another piece of the puzzle in terms of the positive Aussie credit spread story has been stabilising housing conditions. In April 2017, we at Coolabar forecast the end of the housing boom when prices were still climbing and caught a 10% peak to trough decline. We got almost exactly that. CoreLogic's 8 Capital City Index has fallen 10% from its September 2017 peak. But in 2019, specifically in April, when prices were still falling, we declared that the correction was over and forecast that national house prices would increase 5 to 10% in the 12 months following the RBA's second cut. Now, CoreLogic reports that in June, both Sydney and Melbourne house prices appreciated for the first time since mid to late 2017. No matter which way you slice or dice it, the great Aussie housing correction in our two largest conurbations is over. 
I'd agree with that, Yingers. And I guess in terms of our own portfolios in June, I'll just talk about our Insta-only products. These are not available to retail investors. And all returns are quoted pre-fees because fee negotiations are uh, confidential. But our active composite bond strategy, uh, again, our wholesale Insta-only product, was up a return-wise 12.7% over the 12 months to 30 June. Uh, so we're very pleased with that performance. I think the indexed uh, did about uh, 9% over that same period. And our uh, other Insta-only active credit alpha strategy, uh, which has no interest rate duration, our active composite bond strategy uh, runs circa five and a bit years of interest rate duration risk. But our zero interest rate duration active credit alpha strategy was up 11.0% before fees um, over the 12 months to June. Turning to the month of July, it's been really interesting. The FOMO dynamic has uh, continued to assert itself intensively uh, and as I've mentioned we saw a massive rally in major bank senior bonds. This is powered the Osbond FRN or floating rate note index so that's up 0.34% in the first 18 days of the month which is a very very strong outcome so that's up 34 basis points. The hybrid market has continued to do well, uh, we see the ASX hybrid market up between 40 and 60 basis points over the first 18 days of the month. Um, the equity markets has generated some solid returns, up about 98 basis points. Interestingly, after a stellar run, uh, that Composite Bond Index, which is a five-year interest rate duration index, that's actually had a negative return in the first 18 days. It's down 14 basis points, or down negative 0.14%. In our active composite bond strategy, we're up actually up uh, 53 basis points um, over the same period, or up uh, 67 basis points ahead of the index over the first 18 days of the month. So I think that's a pretty good summary of what's happened in June, July. And apologies again to our listeners for not publishing a podcast as promptly as we could have. So Chris, as I alluded to earlier, a revolution is coming to global debt markets via a tsunami of high-risk bail-inable bonds after APRA finalised its total loss-absorbing capacity, as I mentioned, TLAC, uh, this month. This has triggered a massive reduction in the credit spreads on the major banks' safest senior ranking bonds while pushing out the spreads on their bail-inable tier two subordinated debt. And tier two spreads could move much wider once the market figures out the real volume that needs to be issued. Yeah, that's right, Ying, as APRA's TLA policy will force the major banks to increase their issuance of tier two bonds from their current refinancing task of 19.2 billion of tier two subordinated bond maturities between now and January 24 to, on our analysis, at least $82 billion of tier two issuance assuming historically very modest balance sheet growth of only 3% annually. Over the four and a half years, the big banks have to satisfy APRA's policy. Uh, they'll have to issue, at least uh, on our numbers, 18.2 billion of tier two subordinated debt annually. And if you add in the other banks that APRA has said will be captured by this policy, this is smaller, yet still very large and complex ADIs, then investors we think are going to be asked to fund between 19 billion and 20 billion per annum of tier two before we factor in um, any further refinancing of tier two maturities for bonds that are currently outstanding from other insurers and other smaller banks that aren't captured by the TLA policy. 
Now, we would argue that this is almost mission impossible given the total global supply of tier two in 2018 uh, with an investment grade rating was just $54 billion. APRA is betting that even though Aussie bonds are a low single digit fraction of the overall global market, the banks can can convince investors to expand global tier two supply by almost 40%. Um, We know that in a bad year, when markets are really stressed, such as what we saw in 2011, 2012, 2015, 2016, and again in the second half of 2018, Aussie banks would be very lucky to fund more than uh, five to 10 billion of tier two. So if we have just one bad year in the next four and a half, the banks will find themselves likely short another $13 billion of tier two funding on top of the 18 to 19 billion per annum that they have to punch out to hit APRA's 2024 deadline. There isn't one bank treasurer I believe out there who really genuinely believes this is actually possible if markets seriously sour. The one Hail Mary uh, everyone appears to be clinging to is the hope that the current exceptionally liquid and exceptionally benign environment persists in perpetuity, which of course it's never done before. If the banks do fail in the fundraising task, APRA has um, said them, they can, I think, justifiably blame the regulator, which I think in some has proposed uh, an imprudent policy which elevates financial stability risks. It is nonetheless a manna from heaven for the sell-side debt teams that get to charge capital raising fees based on the complexity of the bank's issuance. It's also amazingly positive uh, news for the major bank senior bondholders who, after APRA's announcement, were rewarded with a crucial credit rating upgrade to AA- stable from S&P, as Coolabar had long projected. Senior creditors also profited from the much tighter credit spreads flowing from a huge increase in the subordination, protecting them combined with the expectation that there'll be a significant supply squeeze, as we've mentioned, given about 60 billion of tier, uh, sorry, senior will be disappeared by uh, the tier two tsunami. In addition, the long dated nature of uh, tier two issuance, it's typically between you know, five and 15 years, uh, means that the banks will have to reduce the tenor or the maturities of uh, their senior bond issuance to much shorter terms, likely three years and less, which will further intensify the supply squeeze for five year paper. Last week, APRA announced that it would require ANZ, NAB and Westpac to increase their equity capital buffers by an extra $1.5 billion, which is yet another boost to the subordination protecting senior creditors and further incrementally crimps uh, the bank's funding needs from their debt issuance pipelines. In our own portfolios, we took profits on most of our Tier 2 exposures over the first six months of 2019 moving high up the capital structure to the safety of senior bonds in anticipation of a TLAC tsunami in one form or another, be it tier three or tier two, which we'll discuss uh, in a second. In fact, prior to APRA's announcement, we were holding record levels of major bank senior paper. Since late 2018, we'd argued that there was not a snowball's chance in hell that APRA would force the banks to issue 125 billion of tier two to satisfy its TLA policy. Now that was the shortfall deriving from the draft policy paper that uh, APRA published in November 2018. 
if you assumed reasonable balance sheet growth and took the midpoint of APRA's at that time proposed TLAC funding target, which was four to five percent of the bank's risk-weighted assets. Um, yet in the final policy published in July, APRA conceded that its capacity assumptions were indeed totally wrong, junking the 4 to 5% target for the foreseeable future and moving to a much more reasonable 3% goal uh, and extending its timetable by one year. It's actually much more complex than that because APRA has said that it would like to one, get, one day get to its uh, 4 to 5% RWA threshold but it accepts it cannot get there with tier two, as we had argued. Uh, instead, APRA has said it will explore the feasibility of other uh, funding instruments that we've previously canvassed in the podcast. Uh, the banks have confirmed this means a statutory tier three bailable security. Chris, one thing that is clear is that investors have not yet got their heads around the tier two funding tasks. The majors currently have about $34 billion of Tier 2, uh, $19.2 billion of which has to be replaced by January 2024 when they have to be in compliance with the TLAC policy. So APRA's much lower 3% RWA target equates to around more like $50 billion of Tier 2 in current balance sheet terms. That means that total Tier 2 issuance of $69.2 billion between now and 2024, pretty much. While the majors have historically grown their balance sheets by five to 6% annually, we assume only three to 4% growth, even though it could pick up care of recent rate cuts. That increases the 69 billion of tier two funding to be between 81.8 billion to 86.4 billion, or up to $19 billion each year. And much more if heaven forbid credit growth accelerates. Yet. APRA has also said its TLAC policy will apply to other large banks, which presumably means Macquarie, Bendigo and Bank of Queensland, ignoring AMP and Suncorp for the time being. Suppose APRA only slaps these banks with half the major's TLAC target or, you know, one and a half percent of RWA. With modest balance sheet growth, this generates another five and a half billion of tier two, increasing the total shortfall to as high as $91 billion or up to $20 billion annually. And that does not even account for the tier two that has to be issued by smaller banks and insurers to refinance their existing debt. Yeah, it's certainly a tall order. The other interesting point from the APRA release uh, did relate to tier three or an insinuation towards tier three. So last year we argued that for APRA to hit its four to five percent RWA TLAC target, it would have to embrace best practice globally and allow the banks to fund their TLAC requirements with a cheaper and more liquid instrument known as a tier three or non-preferred senior bond. In 2018, so last year, there was about $500 billion globally of tier three or non-preferred senior issuance, almost 10 times as much as the volume of tier two at a fraction of its cost. Now tier three or non-preferred senior is much cheaper than tier two precisely because it is classified as senior, not subordinated. It carries a high credit rating and it ranks above tier two in the capital structure. There are two forms of tier three or non-preferred senior. The first is those with contractual bail-in clauses. That is to say, they can be converted into uh, equity or bailed into equity 
by the re regulator um, in accordance with the terms of the bond contract. And a second, more common alternative, which is a uh, statutory instrument that can be bailed in to equity under legislation. Now, Australian tier two bonds are, are, are unusual globally because they are contractual and they've never been tested with a bail-in event, uh, nor have they ever been challenged in the courts. This made it somewhat curious that APRA actually rejected contractual tier three for all the reasons um, that make our contractual tier two flawed, which APRA, for whatever reason, didn't acknowledge. That is to say, our contractual tier two is unproven, uh, that is, it has never been bailed into equity, and it is open to legal contest, or it hasn't been. Uh, the precedents around uh, tier two bail-in haven't been established uh, in common law. APRA did, however, indicate it would examine the feasibility um, of alternative instruments, which the banks are saying means a statutory tier three or non-preferred senior bond instrument over the next four years. If the banks fail to raise uh, 19 billion of tier two each year, which I reckon uh, is probably more than likely, I think APRA is going to be forced to accept some of these other options. So the $90 billion question now is what price do the majors have to pay in order to source all this tier two? And we got some early answers when the bail-inable debt tsunami arrived last week with two incredibly large tier two subordinated bond transactions executed by Westpac and ANZ that broke records in the US and local markets. And we expect more to come. This would have disappointed those who claimed that the major banks would take their time and not flood the market with supply, especially in Aussie dollars. ANZ shattered that complacency on Thursday with an enormous $1.75 billion um, tier 2 bond that smashed records in terms of its size and the demand in the book build, which was around $4 billion. Previously, the largest over-the-counter Basel III Tier 2 deal in Aussie dollars was $1 billion, while the biggest OTC book build has been a touch over $2 billion. Somehow, ANZ managed to find an extra $2 billion of demand for five-year subordinated debt that has materialised as the RBA's 1% cash rates, or cash rate, sorry, precipitates the mother of all search for yield junkets. ANZ Treasurer Adrian Went pulled this off at a reasonable spread of 200 basis points over BBSW, or a total running yield of 3.1%, which represented a new issue concession of 10 basis points above the 190 basis point fair value spread. And what makes this all the more remarkable is that back in May, when investors were not expecting a torrent of tier two supply, NAB issued a $1 billion bond at a wider 215 basis point spread above BBSW. And yet for some reason, when investors face the spectre of more than $90 billion of tier two over the next four and a half years, they're prepared to accept tighter spreads. We submitted a modest bid due to the parsimonious concession. Yes, uh, we did indeed, ying yi. Uh, I think one driver of the demand was the record multiple of senior bond spreads offered by ANZ's T2 deal. The major bank's five-year senior bonds, which as I mentioned are our largest portfolio position, have, uh, and we've already cited this data, but they've been on an extraordinary tear with spreads compressing from 114 over in January to 62 today. And based on its 200 basis points spread for the new T2 trade last week, ANZ priced its deal at a never-before-seen 3.2 times multiple of five-year senior bond spreads. 
The record for this so-called sub-senior ratio had been previously set at circa 2.6 times in February 2016 by a Westpac deal during very, very volatile conditions. Now, market optimists, which is pretty much anyone who's long tier two, had maintained that the Aussie tier two tsunami would price at around two and a half times senior bond spreads. Uh, We had counted uh, in our analysis publicly and privately that they should trade at three to four times senior. The truth is that sub-senior ratios are now irrelevant, as CBA's head of credit strategy, Scott Rundell, has repeatedly pointed out, and we've echoed. The major bank senior bonds, which are AA minus rated uh, and eligible for sale to the RBA in contrast to T2 uh, via the RBA's repurchase agreements, are pretty close to riskless. You know, they were explicitly government guaranteed during the GFC. In contrast, Tier 2 debt that can be unilaterally bailed into equity by APRA or written off clearly carries much higher probabilities of loss with radically inferior liquidity. Uh, you know, you could trade a billion dollars of major bank senior in a few hours, whereas you'd probably struggle to trade $100 million of Tier 2 in a couple of days. Uh, one can't seriously value Tier 2 on a sub-senior ratio basis. What we do, amongst other things, is model the probability of APRA bailing Tier 2 into equity. Uh, we then typically assume a 0% recovery rate. Uh, and we quantify the minimum risk premium needed to compensate us for this expected loss. We further layer on top of this um, an illiquidity premium to figure out the minimum required total return. And the other gargantuan tier two transaction during the week was Westpac's record-setting US $2.25 billion deal on Tuesday, the biggest ever by an Aussie bank. The dual tranche structure, which was split across a bond with an expected 10-year maturity and a second security with a 20-year repayment date, attracted an astonishing US $15 billion of bids at the final clearing spread equivalent to around 235 basis points above BBSW for the 10-year and 260 basis points above BBSW for the 20-year alternative. Westpac's Kurt Zuber, who was our most experienced bank treasurer, had never seen anything like it. His last supported bond deal in 2016 secured only US $5 billion of bids. And crucially, the 10 and 20 year tenors mitigate Westpac's future refinancing risk by stretching out its maturities. And like ANZ's went, Zuber priced these bonds with a scant new issue concession. Yeah, it really was an extraordinary result years um, from both ANZ and Westpac, which far exceeded uh, both their and our expectations. Um, and I think you know, the net result is the conclusion that this search for yield dynamic and the FOMO rally are much stronger than folks thought. Um, the bank treasurers have also confirmed on investor calls that they will raise more tier two capital during the good times as a hedge against those years when markets sour and they'll collectively be lucky to issue, as we mentioned, you know, five to 10 billion in, in a tough year. The bank treasurer has also confirmed that the Aussie and US dollar markets will furnish the lion's share of this funding, with Westpac saying that it expects Aussie dollars to quote-unquote dominate. And this is particularly true given how expensive the euro market is now for tier two vis-a-vis the Aussie and US alternatives. I mentioned earlier that um, the bank treasurers have also confirmed that they believe APRA is actually committed 
to exploring a much cheaper statutory, statutory or legislated tier three bond solution over the next few years to get to its longer term TLAC target of four to five percent of risk weighted assets, uh, noting as we have that they've accepted a compromise of just three percent of RWA for the foreseeable future. This would cost, that is tier three would cost the banks between 100 and 150 basis points annually, less than what they are currently paying to issue tier two, while still giving APRA a true gone concern capital buffer. You know, one of the interesting things though, Ying, is about APRA's, uh, APRA's announcement and the letter that they sent to the banks was that they sort of muddied the waters on precisely what tier two is. And I thought this was actually pretty silly, but you know, they did it nonetheless. Specifically, what they said was that they wanted with their TLAC instrument, the ability to unilaterally bail it into equity, quote unquote, well before a bank was at risk of becoming insolvent. Now, the whole purpose of TLAC capital, so total loss absorbing capacity capital, is it's meant to be gone concern capital. And that refers to capital that is used to recapitalize a bank that is dead as a doorknob, that is done and dusted. This is distinct from going concern capital, which is equity capital or AT1 hybrid capital that a regulator can, or in the case of the hybrid capital, convert into equity whilst a bank is still operating but has gone through a period of very extreme duress so therefore incurred in all likelihood losses that have crushed their equity capital down to the bail-in threshold, which in the case of additional tier one capital hybrids is set at 5.125% of the bank's common equity tier one capital ratio, noting that the average of the four major banks CET one ratios today is around 10.5%. Now, if APRA is gonna do what it says it's gonna do, which is to bail in tier two, well before, quote unquote, a bank is even at risk of being insolvent, then it's effectively treating tier two as going concern capital or effectively like a tier one hybrid. So this begs the question um, whether tier two spreads should actually move up to you know, around 275 over where hybrid spreads are trading or alternatively, should hybrid spreads move down to the circa you know, 194, 193 basis points over level where T2 spreads are currently trading. Um, that particularly refers to the new ANZ deal, which as we mentioned, issued at 200 over, but it's now um, circa 193 bid. So I guess what I'm saying is we're somewhat skeptical about the current demand for T2. You know, we've been one of the most active traders of T2 in the Aussie dollar market for the best part of eight years. And we remember very vividly when the major banks were issuing T2 on the ASX, Basel 2 T2 um, rather than Basel 3 T2 uh, at 275 over bank bills. We remember when ANZ issued it uh, 270 over a few years ago. I remember when Westpac issued it 310 over in February 2016. So the idea of the banks only having to pay uh, 200 over when investors are going to have to fund $90 billion of supply over the next circa four to five years is somewhat hard to swallow. And uh, yeah, I think you mentioned that we had put a modest bid into the ANZ deal and that was definitely true and substantially smaller than our normal um, T2 exposures. Uh, as a percentage of our portfolio today, our exposure to T2 uh, is probably sitting around or less than 2% versus uh, a 60 to 70% exposure in most of our portfolios to bank issued senior bonds. 
So I guess what that's telling you is that when exploiting the search for yield dynamic, our preference is to do so via the safest and most liquid parts of the corporate capital structure until that point where demonstrable mispricings emerge elsewhere. Once again, folks, thank you so much uh, for listening to the podcast. I hope you've learned it a little bit. I would love to learn more from you. I love getting uh, the email feedback, so please keep it coming. If you want me to address any questions on the podcast, happy to do so. You can email me at christopher.joy at coolabarcapital.com. Just a final comment. You might be aware uh, there was some media reporting that we've wholly acquired our retail distribution entity, Smarter Money Investments, which is now a 100% subsidiary of Coolabar Capital. This has resulted in us integrating the SMI product team, so four executives uh, for product specialists on top of our circa four portfolio managers, eight to nine analysts, and our ops, finance, and risk team. Thank you, guys. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product, and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.